How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hello and welcome everyone once again to another episode of the Towards Data Science Podcast. As usual, I'm Jeremy and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And one great way to get ahead in your career is to make good bets on what technologies are going to become important in the future and then to invest your time in learning those technologies. And if that sounds like something you want to do, then one thing you should definitely be paying attention to is graph databases. Graph databases aren't exactly new, but they become increasingly important as graph data, which is data that describe interconnected networks of things, has become more widely available than ever before. Social media, supply chains, mobile device tracking, economics, and many, many more fields are generating more graph data than ever before, and buried in these data sets are potential solutions for what are becoming many of our biggest problems. That's why I'm so excited to speak today to Denise Gosnell and Matthias Brokler, who are respectively the Chief Data Officer and Chief Technologist at Datastax, which is a company that's specialized in solving data engineering problems in enterprises at scale. Now, apart from their extensive experience working with graph databases at Datastax, Denise and Matthias have also recently written a book called The Practitioner's Guide to Graph Data. And they're kind enough to make some time today to chat not only about graph data, but also about the basics of data engineering. And I think those are two topics that are especially important, becoming more important, and I think a lot of people don't know quite as much about. So I'm really excited to dig into this one. Denise and Matthias, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast here. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for coming here. I'm really glad to have you. You're both doing a lot of strategic work at Datastax, uh, which is a company that specializes in delivering data engineering solutions at scale. And I should mention, I'm definitely more from the machine learning side of data science. So a lot of the things that I was hoping we could discuss today during our chat, apart from the unique challenges that Datastax specializes in dealing with, as well as your upcoming book, uh, is the basics of data engineering and what it involves, why it's necessary, and so on. I think that'll be helpful for listeners a bit across the data science spectrum too. But before we get into that, I want to point out that you're both CS PhDs. And I think many listeners, as many listeners will know, there's a bit of a meme going around that you need a PhD to do data science work. I'm not sure if that extends to data engineering, but I'd love to get a sense from both of you, maybe starting with Denise, about how your PhD played into your ability to be effective throughout your data career. Yeah, Jeremy, that's a that's a really great question. And my PhD uh, was very effective so far in my career by giving me a very unique way to think about how to solve problems. And with respect to you know the work that we're here highlighting today, that unique perspective that I've been bringing is how to look at connected data as a new feature or a new way that you can bring that into your model for being able to predict something new. So for example, a specific way that I've uh, helped build this before is by using connections and graph structured data uh, for predicting people's identities in telecommunication networks. 
that was the theme of uh, the research that I did for, for my dissertation. And it just so happens to be one of the most correlative features you can have in a machine learning algorithm for someone's identity on a social network. So by having a way to think differently about data and specifically by using the graph structure in data, that's just given me a new perspective uh, to the different ways that we've been doing data science and machine learning algorithms. Matthias, just before you answer, can I get a quick sense of what that interconnected type of data looks like? What are some of the special attributes that, that make it qualitatively different from regular tabular data, if that's even a comparable? Yeah, absolutely. Like for me as well, during my PhD, I got um, a first glimpse at network science, which is sort of this this in this sort of sub area of of science where you look at this highly connected data. And what makes this data so different is that it really emphasizes the role that relationships play in the data and how you analyze the data rather than the data points, right? And I think from a machine learning perspective, that's very, um, very obvious where you often look at vectors of data and you try to identify what are the right features, what should I put in my vector to make my machine learning model work better. And when you look at network data, it's really much more about how are things connected than what those things are that really matters in terms of transmission, in terms of emergent properties of a system, right? That's where it gets so interesting when you have not just individual sort of agents that do something and you can look at them individually, but now they are connected to each other, they react to each other, and suddenly you get a system that behaves completely differently than its individual agents. And you're trying to reason about the system at large, like a society and how like information spreads in a society and how it impacts us or how a disease spreads across the network. And when you look at all these like larger air topics that emerge from this, it's, it's so hugely fascinating to try to reason about that. And for that, you need, you know, a whole different area of science, which is called network science. And it really depends on the discipline because it impacts like physics and biology and obviously computer science and all these areas have their own sort of variant of network science. But what got me so interested in this is that when you look at this and you're like, wow, this is so phenomenally fascinating, then you realize we actually don't really have the tools to do much with this data, right? Like other than I'm going to take pen and paper, I'm going to sketch it out, right? And try to understand like who knows whom and like how do we, you know, who infected whom or who like told whom the news. Like that, that's an incredibly laborious way of doing this kind of analysis. And so when you look at computer science and like, what can we do to make this problem easier? Then you get into the area of graph databases and how do we represent networks? How do you store networks? How do you reason about them effectively? And that's kind of where, where I ended up with my career. Okay, great. I know, Denise, you know, you specialized more, more so in the machine learning side of things when it comes to this kind of data. One of the first questions that comes to my mind when I hear, you know, graph databases, these kinds of strange data structures that are, frankly, like kind of unpredictable, right? I don't know if, if a given node is going to have, I don't know, 10 columns associated with it or rows. I don't even know how to picture that. So how, yeah. how should I be thinking of that in terms of machine learning? What kinds of machine learning algorithms even make sense on that kind of data? That's a that's a really great question and, and definitely a steep one to get started with. So uh, when when you're thinking about the connections within data, uh, one of the ways, like you just mentioned, that you begin to realize there's a new paradigm of thinking about this is just the sheer number of edges or relationships or connections that any person can have, and that it's not fixed, like you mentioned. And so when you want to think about different algorithms or machine learning algorithms you want to run on that data, you want to think about different ways that you could group people together. You could group people together according to those maybe that have uh, high connections or group, grouping different people together where everyone knows that person. And when you're looking at this, what we're kind of loosely describing right now is what we would call page rank, a way to take an unsupervised way 
to crawl across your entire graph and understand the most influential people in that graph. So this could be, uh, if you're looking at who knows who, uh, all of the people who know uh, someone else, like a celebrity. And, and that's one starting algorithm that you could kind of crawl across your whole graph. Uh, and for other machine learning algorithms, there's there's a lot of a lot of approaches in the clustering space to begin to dive into different ways to cluster communities uh, in your graph. Where you might want to look at uh, communities that are well connected and very strongly connected, where you'd be representing like a social circle or a group of people according to having a, a very high dense number of edges within a small like ten or twenty group of people. Uh, so th those are two algorithms that people commonly get started with when you're approaching the unsupervised uh, machine learning algorithms with graph structures. So I'm, and I'm guessing, uh, and this will speak to Matthias's area of expertise as well, a lot of those algorithms involve essentially loading things into RAM. The RAM-heavy algorithms where, you know, so you imagine before I can do clustering, I need to know where all my points are in space. Before I can do k-nearest neighbors, I need to know where all my points are in space, which immediately to me implies again, based on what little I know about data engineering, it implies a data engineering problem because RAM is a finite resource. Uh, so Matthias, what are some of the data engineering and, and sort of data storage, if that's the right word to use, implications of this, this kind of machine learning strategy? Yeah, that is a really, really good point. We, as computer science, we really only know how to deal with graphs when they're in RAM, because then we can pretend we have fast enough access that we can actually sort of traverse the data in the somewhat random manner that it's been laid out on disk. Um, we load it into RAM and then we, you know, we can, we can get that like nanosecond access time and we can mostly pretend like we have readily, we have ready access to the data. Um, but even in RAM, you, you notice that you'll run into limitations because, you know, just randomly jumping across, even if you have terabytes of RAM, that takes quite a while and compared to the CPU, um, that's still very slow. And so a lot of the work in graph database and graph data engineering is about how do you sequentialize the data? so that the data that you're about to access in the graph is actually sequentially stored on disk or on in like sequentially stored in RAM or even on the same machine, right? When we talk about very, very large graphs that don't fit on a single machine, then you're really trying to make each machine else self-contained with respect to the graph data that it stores and not just randomly sprinkle your graph across a, an array of machines. And that was largely what my PhD research focused on is how do you sequentialize? How do you partition graphs? What are graph partitioning strategies that work with billions and billions of vertices and edges or nodes and edges in the graph? How do you get graphs like little subgraphs on disk pages so that when you read a disk page, you have most of the data you need already? Um, and it's, yeah, there's there's a huge area there. I mean, I, I think we've just touched upon how to do that effect effectively um, because we're still mostly just relying on put it all in memory and then hope for the best. Mm -hmm. And the this idea of so when you say sequentializing, and this is just a stupid question because I don't have any any background in the space, but so sequentializing as opposed to breaking your graph down into subgraphs, like what what does sequentializing mean in that context? Oh, okay, yeah. So so when you think about computer memory in general, right, whether it's RAM, whether it's on disk, it's it's basic. It's a linear storage medium, right? I can allocate memory, and then I get a linear block of memory, and I can write to that linear block of memory, um, and I get some guarantees depending on fragmentation that this data is stored sequentially on disk. So when I read it back, I get a pretty fast access time, right, because I get sequential read speed, which is the fastest that you can get. Um, so really what it boils down to is you're trying to embed a graph, which is a multi and potentially infinitely dimensional structure 
into a one-dimensional space, right? So you, if you think about it from from an embedding point of view, um, like kind of like a like a nearest neighbor problem, right? It's similarly an embedding embedding problem. So from an embedding problem's perspective, you're trying to embed a graph into a one-dimensional space, which obviously is a huge reduction in dimensionality. Um, and that is that's really the ultimately the really hard problem you're trying to solve. And I think right now the state of the art is there are some tools that allow you to do that automatically, but there's still the human still plays a key role in giving us the kind of clues that we need in order to understand how to do that embedding well. And a lot of the the book that we wrote is about like what do you can you as a user do to make that embedding work better? Okay, well, that's actually a rather nice segue to the book itself. Denise, can you give us kind of a quick overview of, of what this book is about, who it's targeting, and um, maybe what, what some of the, the biggest use cases are that it can help with? Yeah, yeah, that's a great segue. And uh, this, this book is targeting data engineers and data scientists who want to learn how to use graph technology in production. There have been a lot of fantastic uh, use cases that we've seen and POCs that have been built. And what Matthias and I did was we extracted uh, a lot of the common patterns and common use cases that we've seen over the past 10 years. And we, we wrote about the production tips and tricks that you need in order to put them into a production use case. So as you go throughout the book, you, you see that there are four templates uh, that we demonstrate from a development perspective and then production tips on how to get them from the idea and into a useful working application. So those, those four templates that we present in the book, uh, we call them customer 360, trees or hierarchical data. The third one is called paths. And the last one is collaborative filtering. We picked these four because they're the most common ways that people want to query graphs in production applications. And you really want to take that mindset to using a graph in production. And that mindset is thinking through how you want to walk through your data and planning that up front so that you can architect your system and your data layout to be much more efficient to all the points that Matthias just brought up. So to kind of bring this together, Matthias was just talking about bringing your data or bringing groups of your data into one partition or co-locating that data maybe. And so we talk about that uh, you know, really in detail in reference to this customer 360 idea. So I'm gonna kind of walk all the way through that briefly. Yeah. So for customer 360, that one is the most popular way people are wanting to use graph data in production because they want to say that this is my customer, this is their account, maybe the store that they visited, the item that they purchased. Like you can kind of paint this picture of everything that's connected to that one person. And what you can do in order to be more intelligently designing your graph database is to make sure that you understand upfront what queries that you need to write in order to model this and design your graph database and design your queries so that it's most efficient from that perspective. So this is um, you know, query-driven design for your data model and then the actual traversals that you're writing on that graph data model. And this type of templatable pattern is what we do and we walk through throughout the book for those four use cases. And, it, and, and to Matthias's point earlier, there's a lot that you can do up front to put your data together uh, that you're going to be walking through to help co-locate it and make your traversals much faster uh, to all of the pagination and disk issues that he was just mentioning. So one of the things I really find fascinating about this, it almost implies when you work with graph databases that you have like, there's an extra step. I mean, if I imagine working with a, a SQL database that just contains tabular data, uh, it's pretty straightforward. There's a single way to look at my data set. It's rows and columns, and that's the end of the story. Whereas here it really sounds like before I can even start asking questions of my data, I have to start thinking about 
what uh, what perspective do I want to take on my data? Which one of these four perspectives am I am I looking at like a person and then things to do with them, or am I looking at as at the network as a whole? I guess, or is that an accurate way, uh, Matthias? Do you, do you think? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I think there's there's different the, the, definitely the the perspectives that matter in particular in terms of how you want to think about your data. Oftentimes there's multiple ways you can think about it, like you already hinted at, like you can think of like a um, an e-commerce graph as a a customer purchased a product, or you can think of it as a customer or filed a purchase that included products that has a fulfillment and so on and so forth. So a lot of it, and we walk in through that in quite some detail in the book, is about how you want to materialize your domain in, in some actual representation in the graph so you can answer the kinds of questions that you're interested in. Um, and that's, I think, is one of the critical elements of graph analysis is start with the data and start with the questions and then see how the two converge. So you can come up with a representation that is actually beneficial for the kinds of things that you want to do with your data. Exactly. That last part of your sentence there, I think is so interesting. So there really are different things, different, let's say, machine learning algorithms to keep beating this drum that you can use depending on the perspective that you take. I assume these four different ways of looking at your data imply four different you know, not classes of machine learning models, but types of things you can do. Is that, is that fair to say, Denise? Yeah, um, I think that's that's very fair to say. And uh, I, I think one of the great examples to really paint is where we get to towards the end of the book uh, when we show how to do collaborative filtering uh, with graph structures. But we specifically take the spin of how do you do this in production and actually get the SLA that you experience when you're using Netflix? If you're going to be a user of Netflix who wants to get that top recommended movie to watch uh, while we're all staying at home, you're not going to want to wait for them to run the entire algorithm in order to make that recommendation. Yeah. Uh, so when we detail that, it, it really starts to showcase the difference of asking a really simple question like, give me three recommended movies according to my most recent highly rated movie. That's a really easy question to think about. Um, I just watched a movie and I want three recommendations because I really liked it. Now there's different ways that you can outline your traversal so that you're either hitting three partitions or just one. And that SLA is gonna be very much a requirement that you have designed that you have to design for these days when you're building this in an application. In addition to making sure that you've run these computations offline so that your end user is able to get this information in you know, Netflix expectation speed. Um, so that, that question and thinking through how you're gonna serve up a recommendation from one movie to three or however many and ensuring that you understand how that maps down all the way on disk kind of helps to bring together the perspectives on how to apply a machine learning algorithm but in a production system with you know, SLAs and, and application requirements. Right. And I guess even um, assessing, trying to think here of like how I would imagine assessing the the distance, let's say, between different nodes in this kind of network. Like when I think of K-nearest neighbors, for example, there is a way to do K-nearest neighbors where you, for example, only load like half your data or a fraction of your data into RAM. And that approximates, it allows you to get an approximate prediction. Whereas I imagine graph databases, like that just doesn't work because you need to account for like the, those connections that you might be losing contain a ton of information. So Matthias, earlier you talked about this idea of splitting up this big graph into subgraphs. And then that was, I guess, part of your research too. How do you do that in a way that doesn't like dramatically compromise a lot of the information that you're you're trying to save? Yeah, that really is a million dollar question. If I had the perfect answer to this, I probably... Uh 
would have gotten a touring award or something by now. Um, no, just kidding. I think there's there's a uh, this is very much an open research area and how well I mean you know we all we know that graph petitioning is an MP hard problem so there is unfortunately no easy answer to this but as so often in practice you can sometimes exploit certain characteristics of the graph to come up with good enough approaches and um, in particular in the, in the research that I've done I, I could show that. Um, if you look in, if you look at certain types of graph structures, then you know bottom up um, modular modularization based techniques can work really really well. Um, some labeling techniques can work pretty well as well, um, depending on what the graph is and and how you go about approaching it. So very often, for instance, you you have graphs where you have these super super highly connected um, vertices in the graph, right? These kind of the you know we we always used to call them the, the Ashton Kutcher's of the Twitter world. Yes. I think you know that kind of dates me, I suppose, and and how long the research, <laughs> how long ago the research was. Um, but that was you know that used to be the problem. Like if you encounter an Ashton Kutcher while you traverse your graph, then boom, suddenly you're like connected right. to 27 million people, and that blows up spectacularly, right? And so what can you do to eliminate those super nodes and 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 be able to petition your graph um, regardless of their impact. And so there are a couple of interesting techniques that you can use. Um, but the, the interesting thing is they still mostly depend on your understanding of the domain. And in that sense, it's kind of similar to machine learning models, right? Where there's so many models out there, but you still have to understand which one works for which kind of data, right? Like what, what am I trying? Like what is the machine learning problem I'm trying to solve? And then if you have an expert that can tell you this problem, this you know, this type of you know machine learning model is likely going to work better than some regression models, some than some k-nearest neighbors models, um, and similarly in graph data, like you still, we still haven't figured out how to completely automate the step. You still need a human in the loop who can tell you, okay, I get you. This is you know scale-free data, which is a fancy word of saying that you have a couple of nodes that are very very highly connected and many 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 nodes that have few connections. So in that type of data, you know, what are we doing? Can we identify the backbone of the graph, eliminate the backbone, and then partition the rest? For instance, would be something that somebody could come up with. And so you still need a, that kind of human in the loop, and that's essentially what data engineering is in that regard, or what a data scientist would have to do when they encounter a new graph data set is to do this kind of analysis step through it, understand what they're dealing with, and then come up with an approach that is likely going to work and then experiment with it, right? Similar with machine learning. You just got to run the model, you know, do some tenfold cross-validation, see what comes up. And with graphs, similarly, you, you make some guesses, you run it through, you know, you put it in a database and you see how it actually lands and how your performance shapes up once you run the algorithms. I think this is a really useful segue into the more, some other questions I had about the more practical side of data engineering and what it looks like day to day. And to, to get into that, this is going to sound like a really basic question, but I think it reflects where I come from in terms of my background. I don't know much about this at all. So um, talking about data engineering, I mean, I think most people basically get that you know when you're dealing with large data sets or with large amounts of data flow, uh, data engineering becomes necessary. Uh, but could you provide us with like an overview, just for, for beginners here on this issue, of the different scales of big data and the tools that become necessary at each one? Because to me, I hear... Cassandra, I hear Spark, I hear Hadoop, Pig, Hive, all the different Pokemon names. I, I don't really know when and where to apply each one. So um, maybe what I'll do is I'll start with Denise on this and, and maybe uh, Matthias will have some, some input as well. Yeah, Pokemon, definitely Denise first. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm kind of stuck on Pokemon and now trying to figure out uh, which character maps to which database. <laughs> uh, that would be a fun graph to build. 
Um, and I guess from the from the perspective of, of where our work has been, we've been working mainly at the most extreme end of that scale that you just mentioned, Jeremy. We've been working within uh, graphs that you know they don't fit within your laptop computer. They don't fit on that single machine. And they do need a distributed environment uh, where you're able to host this massive network across many many machines. And that's you know that that's the the intersection that Matthias and I have been working in together. Graphs that need Apache Cassandra essentially underneath uh, in order to be able to model them. And so that that Cassandra level scale, we're talking about graphs where you're mapping out the entire telecommunication network of the entire world. Anytime someone texting somebody else, um, any any anything that really starts to sound a lot like that mix between time series relationships that's really when you're going to need Cassandra scale for modeling your graph. Um, we see that, like I just mentioned in telecom, we see it within uh, the power network, within sensors. That's actually something really interesting and unique that we dive into in the book as well, uh, how there's a self-organizing sensor network of communication happening uh, within the power grid and how they're sharing uh, energy, uh, energy levels throughout the network. Uh, it, it's that scale uh, where you do really need massive distributed systems. And there's, I guess, an, you can imagine starting with a data set that's small enough to fit in RAM, and then you fire up your Jupyter notebook and you use your pandas and so on. And then, uh -huh. th th so the next level up, I, I imagine, you know, you're, you're exceeding your RAM now. So now you have to use things like generator functions in Python, say, or have scripts that read, you know, and maybe you're using Spark there. Uh, is, is, there is there an intermediate zone between where that strategy leaves off and, uh, and the sort of massive scale of Apache Cassandra? Yeah, I would say, I mean, my rule of thumb is, you know, if you're dealing, you know, in the hundreds of thousands to single digit millions of edges, um, then you can safely just kind of load it all in RAM and use whatever library of you're choosing. A lot of them now have like specific graph libraries, so you don't have to, you know, try to shoehorn it into tables and, and that stuff, but you can use sort of a native graph representation. Once you get into the millions, like hundreds of millions, tens, hundreds of millions, you likely need to have more of a database behind it so that you can look, have something on disk and, you know, have efficient, efficiently compressed files and all that sort of fun stuff. Once you get into the billions, that's, I think, when it starts to get interesting in terms of, you know, having to use distributed machines. And it, again, depends on what you're trying to do. Like if you're just trying to run like a static analysis, you will likely get away with having just a very beefy machine and lots of RAM and just, you know, load it all into RAM and run it there. Um, if you're trying to build the data engineering system where you actually have consumers that are, you know, hitting your graph that are continuously loading data into it, that's when you start to get much more into the database world where you can't just have everything sit in a single machine and RAM because high availability and, you know, what happens when that machine fails, et cetera, et cetera. Um, plus, you want to spread out the workload across multiple machines. And that's when you end up getting into the distributed graph territory, roughly speaking, obviously. Depends a lot on the data, depends a lot on how big your individual edges are, et cetera. But that's kind of my rule of thumb is billions, then you should start looking into, into distributed technologies. One thing I find really interesting about your answer is I asked you a question about the scale of the database, and you gave an answer that quantified things in terms of the number of edges in the graph. Right. This, is, this speaks to my general ignorance, but um, it, now that you said it, it makes sense. Is it customary then to measure the size of a data set, a graph data set, I guess, in terms of the number of edges rather than the number of nodes, just because I guess there are way more nodes than edges typically in these graphs? Way more edges than nodes, yes. Sorry, way more edges than nodes, right, right. Yep, yeah, they, and they do, they, they typically measure them according to distributions on how connected your mm -hmm. nodes or your vertices are. And uh, we heard Matthias mention scale-free earlier, uh, you know, in this uh, in this podcast where 
most natural graphs are connected in a scale-free manner. You know, you have a few vertices that are very highly connected, and most of the vertices are very, you know, only have a few connections. Um, but I, I, from my perspective, when we're thinking about how do I need it, what, what tool do I need for my graph problem? I think more along the lines on how Matthias described it with, well, what are you doing with your graph? And what is your, what is your objective of what you're trying to accomplish? Because as you walked through his scale, you also were hearing, I just want to play with the graph. I want to maybe try something a little bit bigger and then, right. oh, I actually build a production system. Uh, so from, from, you can kind of look at that question from that perspective as well to figure out what type of tool set you need. Actually, I think this, to me, again, as an uninitiated layperson on this, one of my first instincts is, oh man, I want to go and, and play with this. I want to go and see if I, what I can do with this. So let's suppose somebody out there goes, all right, I want to use the Twitter API to set up some basic graph database, start playing around with this, get an intuition for this sort of thing, maybe make a data science project to help me get a job or upskill or whatever. What would be like a really good way to, like a basic tech stack that's pretty straightforward for a small, uh, a small database, somebody just wants to chew on a little project on the side. Do you guys have any re recommendations there? I mean, my recommendation would be to start with a sort of a pre-compiled data set of, from the Twitter API. Like don't, you know, don't try hitting up the Twitter API. I can, you know, because they do have rate limiting now, unfortunately. <laughs> so you're not going to get very far in terms of building a large graph. But there are, um, there's a great, um, there's a couple of great repositories on the internet where you can download sort of pre-made graph data sets. Um, like Stanford, um, this, it's called Snap, um, the Stanford Networks, analytics products product or some project who um thanks denise um so so that's out there um there's a there's a lot of um, um graph data sets in sort of the rdf semantic web universe as well that are really interesting to look at so start with one of those and then download those and so you have like a you know like a ready-made uh, graph data set and then i would suggest like like something like a jupyter setup would be would be really useful if you're familiar with python there's a, a couple of good network um network libraries in Python you can get started with. There's a couple in Java as well. So, you know, kind of pick one, one of those, load the data in there and see if you can make the connections between the vertices and the edges and the various ways in which you can model your data and start exploring it. And then once you want to up-level um, to more of a, like transition more from a data science realm where, you know, most exploring the data, trying to understand how you can reason about it, how you can analyze it, how you can get useful information out of it. If you want to transition from that to more of a data science, uh, sorry, more of a data engineering perspective, then I suggest you start looking into Apache Tinkerpop, which is a, a framework um, that includes a lot of really useful tools for graph analysis at various kinds of scale. So you can start, like there's the classic Tinker graph, which is a sort of an in-memory graph graph database um, that you can use to small, play with small data sets. And then you can use one of the many vendors that are supported, um, data stacks included, and, and play with that. And then you know scale it up to your heart's delight from there. Um, that would be my recommendation for tech stack evolution. Awesome. And just to press you a little bit on, you, you mentioned um, two or a couple of different libraries for this stuff in, in Python. Would you mind just kind of mentioning some of those just so people can look them up? I, I would have to, I'll I'll get them to you after here. Oh uh, sure, yeah. Because I haven't uh, haven't haven't done that in quite a bit. I don't want to. I want to make sure that there's the one that I'm thinking about particularly is I used last like seven years ago. So I'll okay, yeah, I'll yeah. get you the links. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. What we'll do is we'll link to that in the in the actual blog post. Yeah, along with this stuff because I think that's just so useful. You know, graph databases. I actually had a a chat with I think somebody who was heading up 
an operation at, at NASA. So he was doing, um, he was the head of people analytics at NASA, and he was discovering graph databases and really kind of diving into them and just was singing their praises. Uh, just really cool to see the evolution of tooling around this stuff, data stacks included and in, in sort of leading in that effort. Um, in terms of the, another aspect of the tooling, of course, is the choice of, of database or, or the choice of data storage language, I should say, really. Um, this idea of SQL versus NoSQL. And obviously, if you, if you work app side, if you do a lot of JavaScript development, you know, a lot of people are familiar with MongoDB as a NoSQL, uh, NoSQL database. What are some of the trade-offs, the considerations? When should you use SQL? When should you use NoSQL? And uh, maybe we can talk about the different kinds of NoSQL as well, because I think Datastax has a lot to say there too. But uh, Denise, maybe I'll start with you. SQL versus NoSQL. Maybe you can settle the debate here. <laughs> oh, yeah. No All pressure. Right. <laughs> yeah. SQL versus NoSQL. Um, I'm, I'm really just going to start with, uh, from our perspective, is your data connected or not? Mm. Uh, if your data is connected, you're going to go NoSQL. Okay. So I, to me, that, that's a pretty clear and concise way to start with that one. Um, from, uh, from the NoSQL to SQL perspective as well, uh, I like to also consider the shape of the data, which is, you know, we did just talk about connected data, but um, I also like to consider other shapes of data, like wide column, JSON, et cetera. And from that perspective, it, it really depends on uh, what type of application you're building and making sure that you're picking a tool that fits uh, within that type of problem. So when you're working with JSON, wide column, connected, other more you know, non-traditional tabular shapes, that's always going to push you into the NoSQL category. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I like to get started uh, with, that, with that debate, though there's plenty more ways you can go down that route, like the speed of, uh, of, how, of, of your data, how fast is it, uh, how quickly do you need to be able to respond, uh, how much analytic are you going to be running and or how many analytics are you going to be running? Things like that. Okay. So I'm going to take a big risk and I'll, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to give my guesses to the reason why knowing full well that I'm probably going to be wrong. So that's okay though. Cause we no can, I can always cut this out. That's the beauty of doing these interviews. Uh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> so, so I was just gonna say, I also love all these hard questions, but I was not warmed up yet for this. <laughs> I love that Denise gets the hard questions first. That's so good. Gives me like 30 extra seconds. <laughs> oh, sweet. I would I would put a caveat on the whole comment. Like one problem with the whole SQL versus non-SQL, no-SQL debate is that it's kind of like asking the question, you know, do you do you like peanut butter or no peanut butter? Like, and there's the whole category of everything that's not peanut butter. And it makes it really hard because, you know, that category contains apples and Pop-Tarts and, you know, like tuna fish and whatever else. You know, it's it's really hard to then say like which one is better because it's it's so broad. In particular with respect to graph data. 
you can start in the NoSQL category, you have like wide columnar models, which have no concept of relationships, right? It's just like you get a key and then you get a big blob of values and you can internally structure the values. And that's really, really powerful for the kind of like internet scale, Google scale applications where you want to make sure you get a quick, I give you a key and you give me all the data that I need and I get sub 10 millisecond response times. And, you know, I can guarantee that and I can guarantee that at scale and it can distribute and all that stuff. But there's no graph in there, right? You have to pre-materialize all your graphs. You have to pull on all the data that you need. Similarly, Mongo goes a little further, gives you those sort of the tree structures, right? You can say I have a root and then like within it, I have some nested data, but it basically gives you localized tree structures, again, speaking in graph language. Then you go to the SQL category and SQL actually has a notion of relationships, right? You've probably seen like ERD type models and things like that. So I can, it's all at the end of the day, it's all tables and rows, but I can say, hey, this column here is actually a foreign key that points to a different table. And then I can do a join and I can follow that relationship and I can join again and I can and do these sort of graphy type things. So SQL actually is more on the relationship side of things than like something like a Mongo or like a white columnar store, key value store. But then you run into sort of limitations there because at some point when once you start writing seven-way joins, your head is going to start spinning and you don't know where up and down is anymore just because it becomes just so hairy to do those kinds of queries. And that's when you start getting into the graph world where there are query languages that really allow you to write those, write those kinds of queries while still being able to read the query in sort of a, you know, in a one-liner at the end of the day. You can like read it and be like, oh, this is what this does versus a seven-way SQL join with inner, outer, whatever joins, filters, where conditions. You're just gonna like you're just gonna glaze over that and be like, okay, whatever that is. And that's I think that's kind of the the sequence that I see. It's not a SQL versus no SQL debate. It's more like if you put it on a spectrum, you have the key value, then you have the document, then you have the entity relationship, and then you have graph in terms of what it can do with respect to graph data. And that's how I would look at it. And in the book, in fact, we actually do a very deep dive into at what point does it make sense for you to leave the comfortable world of SQL and go to graph? Because uh -huh. we do want to, we're not trying to just say, hey, graph, 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 graph is the greatest thing. Like always use graph, 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 graph. Yeah. It's really about at what point does it become a necessity because you're losing productivity, you're losing your ability to actually do meaningful work in SQL because you're just, your head's just spinning. Mm -hmm. At what point does it make sense to jump off the graph and say, even though you're likely not familiar with the technology yet, right, because it's a new field, it still makes sense for you to make that jump because you're going to be so much more productive in that world using tools that are meant for this world. I think there's there's so much. I mean, I'm so glad that that's a big focus because every time I talk to folks in data engineering, that's one of the biggest questions people have is like, what's that point where I transition from one tool to the next, either because, as you say, you know the the uh, the UX is just doesn't scale well, or because the it doesn't deal with the scale of data properly. You know, at some point you're going to have to move to to Spark from from your pandas uh, notebook or whatever, and in the same way you got to scale up. So this sort of leads to one of the more forward looking questions I wanted to ask before we wrap up, wrap this up is, where do you see the biggest challenges coming in this space in the next few years? Um, obviously, there are a whole bunch of things around data availability. There's tons more data, of course. Um, are we seeing people use more graph databases and then, I don't know, having to interact between different graph data? I I'm not too sure here, but in keeping with the tradition of uh, asking Denise the unfairly difficult questions, uh, Denise, do you have any, do you have any, <laughs> any thoughts on this side of things? Yeah, um, in the next few years, I uh, have a lot of hope 
that our industry is going to really be tackling and solving the ease of use problems uh, within the entire graph database industry. Uh, as Matthias was mentioning uh, just now, the, the, the branch or the, the decision point of when do I leave SQL and move into graphs, that's starting to form up to where people understand what that looks like a little bit. And we talk about that in our book where I see two main areas where you're moving from SQL and into graph and it, it comes down to an unbounded way that you need to query your graph or just the total amount of computations you need to do in your graph. That, that's usually the point at which you transition. But at that point, the ease of use on how to use the graph, how to use graph technology to solve those problems is not as well uh, ironed out, documented, or just as easy as the you know as their relational counterparts. So I'm I'm really looking and, and looking for and hoping that the graph industry starts to solve these abuse issues, where we have things like that natural ERD for doing your data modeling uh, in graphs, but using uh, you know vertices and edges and having a much simpler way to express schema visually, and then that actually represent the schema on disk with your database. That's one step that Matthias and I have been working on and proposing that we adopt as a community uh, because these abuse is just hard. Um, we're, we're talking about things that make so much sense to discuss because it's how we think as humans. Graph data and relationships are how we navigate life. So it makes a lot of sense to us to talk about, but there's just a really big gap on using uh, that data like that on disk. It was really resonates because I'm used to talking to a lot of technical people who are used to looking at data science, data engineering, and so on as deeply technical questions. But then that leaves out this whole issue of user experience. At the end of the day, someone's writing those SQL queries, those graph database queries. Someone has to read them like a sentence, ideally, and be able to understand what their queries mean just by reading them. Um, uh, Matthias, do, do you have any any other thoughts on that, or is that sort of, I, I'm guessing you both align because of the book? But <laughs> no, absolutely. I think that is the biggest problem. You, you, st you started off joking that we both have PhDs in computer science, and you know worked in network science, and and that is. That's true, and we want to change that. Like, it shouldn't. You shouldn't have to have a PhD right. in this topic area in order to be able to work effectively with the tools. At the end of the day, most of the really interesting problems that we have to solve as mankind have to do with connections and relationships, right? Like, there are very few problems left where you can just look at individual data points and look at them in isolation, right? Like, yes, there's still like, you know, image labeling and, you know, like how do you know translate one text to another? Those are hard problems and we have made a lot of progress on them. But if you look at the really hard problems, like how do we solve cancer? How do we figure out how our financial system works? How do we organize our population in such a way that it is stable and that we're resilient as, as a species? Like those really, really hard questions are ultimately graph problems. And if we wanna solve them, we need to have people who can understand how to reason about them in those graph terms. And right now, that requires years and years and years of studying. Um, and it's unlikely that you know we're gonna ever get the kind of scale where somebody with two years, three years, four years of education has sufficient understanding of how to use this, right? And that's what we need to solve. We need to solve it so that I can give you a better answer to the question, how do I get started in this world? That isn't like, right. oh, use these five different technologies and jumble them together and then move to this t totally different technology stack. Like there's a lot of experimentation out there, which is awesome. There's been a lot of progress over the years, which is phenomenal. And the reason why, you know, you see something new pop up every year, but hopefully in the next 10 years, we can consolidate, we can come together and say, this is the way we're gonna reason about this world. And we can teach millions of people how to do this so that they feel empowered to go out there and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to look into 
supply chains and I'm going to figure out how we can make supply chains more humane and more predictable and, you know, with, with better oversight, like that, that should be the world that we, we strive for. And we're still a good, good deal away from that. In a weird way, this seems to really mirror the prioritization or, or the evolution, I should say, of data science. And, you know, back in the day in the Wild West phase of you know, 2013 or something, right after ImageNet had come out, you basically needed to have a PhD in computer science to just do basic stuff. We didn't have TensorFlow. We didn't have PyTorch. We didn't have any of the tools that people now take for granted. Um, that kind of evolution seems like then it's on the horizon with, uh, with, with graph databases as well. And then hopefully people can become experts in subject matter rather than experts in tooling. Um, well, well said. Oh, well, well, you said it. <laughs> so, well, thanks so much, uh, Denise and Matthias, for, for uh, doing this. I really appreciate it. I think we, we can't talk enough about graph databases, especially nowadays. Um, as you said, so many great reasons to dive into this stuff. Do you have a, well, of course, link to the book, but do you have a social media link that either of you or both of you want to share, a Twitter maybe, that people can use to follow you? Yeah, uh, Matthias and I, we, uh, we have a Twitter uh, for our book. Uh, it's at graph, th graph underscore thinking. Uh, so we'll be posting uh, images from the book and, you know, just kind of lightly describing what we what we have in there on Twitter. So you can kind of get a preview of uh, what's there. Uh, I know both of us are also active on Twitter. I'm at Denise K. Gosnell, uh, always posting uh, lots of fun uh, tidbits about graphs and tech in general. And Matthias, are you on Twitter personally too? Yep. I'm at, I'm on Twitter too. Not quite as active. Um, um, but I, I like to follow along at uh, at uh, M B R O E C H E L E R, which is my last name, Boschula. Uh, just rolls off the tongue, so Perfect. I like to spell it out. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, well, we'll link to those as well. But just for anybody who's just listening to the podcast and not looking at the at the blog Perfect. post right now, great. Well, thanks so much. Really appreciate it, and um, I'm sure we'll be uh, chatting a lot more about this topic in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, thanks so much for having us.